Good afternoon, everybody, uh, or good evening, depending on where you're coming from. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to another episode of Conversations, this time over cocktails. Um, I'm sure HR doesn't want me uh, encouraging day drinking, but hopefully you've come armed with some sort of refreshing beverage. My name is Ryan Lascano. I am an Associate Director of Creative Services here at, on the marketing team here in Seattle. If this is your first time listening, um, Conversations is a series we started with Mitch as part of our celebration of MG2's 50th anniversary. It's a platform for telling stories, sharing some history, and discussing where our firm is headed in the next 50 years. Um, this is our third episode. Our first was led by Mitch Smith and talked with some long-tenured employees about uh, fun stories, memories, and um, thoughts from the past 50 years. Our second episode was led by Kim Drake, who talked with some pretty incredible women about their experiences here at MG2 and in the architecture industry. Um, I will drop a link in the chat here if you'd like to go back and listen to those. And I will find my chat. Okay, so there's the link if anybody wants to go back and, and listen to the previous ones. Um, so let's get on to today's session. MG2's history is full of transition, experimentation, and co uh, continuous improvement. The past 50 years have been tremendous, have brought tremendous amounts of change to the firm, not to mention everything we've all been through over the last 16 months. Change is never easy. With it comes uncertainty, stress, and sometimes heartbreak. Navigating challenges and periods of transition can help, a, uh, can also be incredibly rewarding, building knowledge and resilience that can help us withstand the next thing that comes our way. Sometimes things go as planned, sometimes they quickly go sideways, um, but there's always lessons to be learned, even in failure. This afternoon, we'll talk with four incredible people who've experienced the good, the bad, and the ugly here at MG2. Uh, we've selected these folks because they've seen some stuff and lived to tell about it. They've rolled up their sleeves, done the hard work, and navigated some unique challenges and opportunities in their time here. Uh, we'll talk about the hard-fought wins, the successful failures, and the wisdom they've gained through it all. Um, we'll try and get to some B-sides and deep cuts, and hopefully we'll hear some funny stories along the way. Um, so please join me in welcoming our panelists for this afternoon, um, Eric Marks, Liz Aiello, John Cucci, and Kelly Cook. Um, now, I've prepared some specific questions for them, but please feel free to drop any additional questions you have in the chat. I'll keep an eye on that and throw them in where relevant. Otherwise, we'll save a few minutes at the end um, to go over some of those. So thanks for joining us. Hopefully, it's a great chat. Um, I have no doubt it will be. So uh, to kick us off, um, if each of our panelists want to introduce themselves, um, tell us your role, how long you've been at MG2, and what you're sipping on this afternoon. Uh, so you, you Eric. Oh, I'll go. All right. <laughs> yeah. Happy to. Um, Eric Marks. I'm a principal in the Washington, D.C. office in the client programs market. Uh, I've been at MG2 for almost nine years, um, and I'm currently sipping on a, a gin and tonic. Nice. Liz, you want to go next? Sure. My name is Liz Aiello, and I am a senior associate, um, technically with the Minneapolis office, but I actually live in St. Louis and work remotely. Um, I've been in architecture for 14 years and with MG2 for almost 10 years, which is crazy. And I am drinking a Negroni. Awesome. A what? Negroni. A Negroni, man. Yeah. <laughs> Negroni. All right, John, you're up. Uh, my name is John Cucci. I'm the IT director here at MG2. Um, I've been with the company, wow, 25 years now. <clears throat> um, it's hard to believe. And I am sipping on a, an Irish whiskey, a Red Breast 12. 
Nice. Yummy. Hardcore. Last but not least, Kelly. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Kelly Cook. Uh, I've been with NG2 for five years, most recently with the PMO office. I'm a program manager uh, with that team. Uh, and I'm drinking um, a rosé wine spritzer. <laughs> rosé all day. <laughs> I will keep my comments about rosé to myself. <laughs> that is perfectly fine. They better be positive, Ryan. I love we'll, a good rosé. We'll, we'll talk later, Liz. <laughs> Sweet. All right. Well, thank you again for joining me this afternoon and, and all of us. Um, this will be a great talk. Um, so to kick us off, um, how about each of you tell us about a notable failure in your career here um, and what you learned from it and if it led to any future success? Start with you, John. Uh, a notable failure. Um... Well, I don't know uh, if it was an actual failure, but it was definitely felt like a failure. And it was uh, early on, uh, earlier on in my career, I had just, Jason was still still here at the time. I had just gotten promoted to IT manager and Jason left. And uh, we were looking for an IT director. And honestly, I really didn't feel qualified for the position at all. And um we started looking elsewhere outside of the company and ended up hiring. I'm not supposed to say his name. It's like, uh, what is that? Harry <laughs> Potter, uh, the man who shall not be named. Uh, but we, we hired a gentleman by the name of Keith and, um, he came in and everything went to shit from there. And he <laughs> put us in some really, really bad situations, um, from a contractual standpoint, uh, and some very, or not very, the most uncomfortable position Sorry. I've ever been in, having to be in a conference room with Mitch and lawyers and CEO from the other company. And uh, yeah, it was a, a, a very, it was the worst, the worst part, point of my career. Um, and it was actually the only point in my career where I thought, oh my God, I'm either getting fired or I'm out of here. Um, but through it all, uh, I definitely learned a lot. And the story is, uh, we didn't get sued was for almost, uh, I think it was half a million dollars, Mitch, right? Um, yep. Is what they were claiming. And um, we didn't get sued. Uh, it ended and uh, Keith is no longer with us. And the successful part of that is uh, I eventually got the job uh, as IT director. <laughs> but I did learn a lot from that, uh, how to handle how to handle the contract, what not to do uh, based off of what Keith did. Um, and... Uh, even dealing with the lawyers and 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 having Mitch there to to coach me through it was uh was nice. Nice. Thanks yeah, it's kind of weird uh weird having a an IT director that uh mishandled uh IT security on a personal level at such an egregious level. It's like it was bizarre. It was bizarre. Egregious is the perfect word. The things that he did um yeah, uh, uh, it's, it only happens in the movies. Hey, see, but you can laugh about it now. See, yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool. All right, Kelly, tell us about a notable failure for you. Uh, there's definitely been a few. Um, one that came to mind when I was looking through these questions, Liz and I have been working on the Target account for a few years, and there was one really bad day when Liz called me like first thing in the morning, and she's like, um. All of Target smart sheets blank. <laughs> oh my god, I forgot about Ouch. that. Yeah. Whoops. 
Uh, I ran the connections incorrectly and um, overwrote everything that was MG2 owned. So not all of Target's, but everything that MG2 owned was completely blank. All of their project history. It was really bad. Um, it was fixable and we did fix it. But it, man, that was a really <laughs> stressful day. And uh, Target and I worked it out. Um have somebody else check your connections before you go live is what I learned from that. <laughs> yeah. And now we're all like, Kelly, why isn't this live yet? And she's like, because we need to double check it. Yeah. And triple check that again. Exactly. <laughs> oh dear. All right, Liz, how about you? Tell us about a failure. Um well happy to report mine isn't quite as bad as John's. <laughs> there were no lawsuits involved, but um you know, a learning moment, but felt like a failure, I guess, would, um, in one word, I would say Walgreens. <laughs> Eric, you were there. For that. Oh, I was there. Um, we did some work, uh, I would say probably eight, eight years ago or so, seven or eight years ago with Walgreens. Um, and they threw a lot of work at us at once. And um, we were trying to build a team as we were trying to do the work. And it was it was tough. It was not working. The, the team that we were building was very inexperienced and we didn't have enough experienced people to oversee it. And I think the, the failure that, that on my part was um, not speaking up. I think I was a little too intimidated to say, hey, guys, we're, we're all in over our heads here. We need to, uh, need to bring in some other people. Um, so that's Definitely a lesson. I'm sure there's other folks out there besides me who have trouble admitting when you're in over your head, but um, that's still something that I struggle with. But I always kind of harken back to that experience and remember uh, you can't wait too long to say something. So um, yeah, it was tough. We struggled through and then uh, we stopped working with Walgreens because they didn't want to pay us <laughs> reasonable fees. So it, it all worked out for the best in the end. Um, and we learned your details and moved on. Exactly. So, but yeah, that was, that was a rough time. Yeah. That was actually my first experience working with Liz. That's where it was right after at. you joined MG2, wasn't it? Pretty. It was, yeah, it was definitely less than a year. I was probably a couple months in actually. And that was the mm -hmm. first program that I was working on. Um, and it was definitely some tough sledding. I, I think we were one of the only groups that made some money on our projects, which was great. But um, Liz and I have some stories about that account that we still relive. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's a awesome. good one. Cool. All right, Eric, you want to bring us home? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll bring us home on this one. Um, I've had plenty of missteps in my career, and I think I'll, I'll, I'll bring one that was also early on at MG2 where I was trying to find my way in a larger firm coming from a smaller firm and really trying to kind of <clears throat> put your stamp on something. And I, I was working on a project that was actually a cross office collaboration with Seattle. And it was through um, a new developer project. And we were working with the uh, Harbor Place project. And I was PMing that and working with Walt Geiger as the the designer on it, but the client wasn't ours. The client was really Seattle based and they were having conversations with folks in Seattle. And we were, it was sort of this disjointed relationship. And, you know, we thought we had a really good relationship with them. Um, and so we were pushing those boundaries a little bit and having 
discussions with them and there were things that they were agreeing to that they didn't really want us to do, but they told us they wanted us to do them. And then they would go back door and have conversations with other folks. And, and, and in essence, I ended up really, really pissing off that client and they wouldn't tell it to my face. And so I kept, you know, pushing and pushing and pushing and doing what we did. And it, it got pretty, pretty bad and ugly. And to the point where I was removed from the project and had to really had no idea any of this was happening behind the scenes was really trying to build relationships in the firm. And it, it got off to a, a pretty rocky start there, but um, big lesson learned is to make sure that you're having honest discussions with your clients, but also having the right amount of communication internally to make sure things are really going the way that they're supposed to go. Um, and, you know, it, it's something that's going to happen to a lot of people and having a client mad, mad at you is not the end of the world, but it never makes you feel good. And it definitely never makes you feel good when you're trying to build relationships internally and they sort of get trashed off the front because you're, you're, you take a misstep. So. But look where you are today. <laughs> Eric had the, uh, the, the confidence to actually come to me to clear the air on that one uh, and didn't want there to be any lingering uh, residual effect of it, uh, which there wouldn't have been, but uh, you know, that was, that was a good thing. Years later, I don't feel so bad about it because that client still owes us money, but nonetheless, <laughs> it's pretty bad. Cool. It's always the client's fault. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely yeah, totally. it's not anything I did. <laughs> no, no. You'll, you'll want to tell the client how they're wrong too. Yeah. Good, good idea. Cool. All right. Well, thanks everybody for sharing. Um, so Kelly and, and Liz kind of mentioned Target. So I want to start there um, and talk with you guys kind of about Target as a bit of a struggle turned success um, in the long run. So um, Liz, if you can tell us a little about your experiences with Scott and Justin kind of rebuilding the Target relationship and, and taking over that account, turning it over I mean, to what it is. Just to be clear, Ryan, Target's always a struggle, but uh, yes, but no struggle, <laughs> struggle turns success. Um, yeah, I think, um, and this was like right when I was, well, a little before, but um, as I was joining the Target account, all of this was kind of going on. So, um, but I think kind of the first thing that we did with, with Target was to admit, or sorry, not admit, but like, assure target that the old regime and the way of doing things at mg2 like in terms of their client relationships and their projects had left and um and those practices that target was not a fan of were also gone with them um so i think that was kind of the first thing was to kind of clear the air about where we where we stood at that point and then have some pointed conversations about um you know, what are the specific changes that Target wants to see from MG2? Um, and then from there, we put together a plan about how we were going to address those those issues and move forward. Um, so I think it was um, a lot of honesty, which is kind of difficult, but it's nice that Target is a client that that isn't afraid to tell us when we're when we're messing up. Um, you know, they don't just come to us and say, mm, you're out. They'll they'll let us know ahead of time if we're uh, if we're dropping some balls, and they give us an opportunity to to pick them back up and run with them. Um, so luckily, they had confidence in the plan that we presented and uh, and wanted to move the relationship forward. 
Cool. That's awesome. And Kelly, I know you did a lot of work behind the scenes setting up the target program as it is now. So, you know, as you were onboarding people to Smartsheet um, and getting getting that program up, program up and running, what were the things that were really exciting to you and what were the things that were kind of scary? There were definitely a lot of both. Uh, so this was my first project or assignment with the PMO team. I was coming was a, a studio administrator prior. Uh, so my background is in administration and a lot of that is just kind of like filling in the gaps wherever they may be. Uh, so working with the target team, I actually got to work at the project level with the architects, which was really exciting. I had not ever touched that part of the work, which is what we do here. Um, so that was really fun and learning architecture along the way and asking really stupid questions about all of the acronyms that target has. Um, I still ask them <laughs> repeatedly, <laughs> but we did a lot of work with the start sheet, um, still constant maintenance and uh, rework with, with that as a tool. Um, but it was really exciting because nobody knew what smart sheet was at the time and target said, you have to use this. And we said, okay, but none of us knew what it was or how to use it. So it was fun to learn it and um, take that on and then hopefully work to improve it as we've been, I guess, like three years into Smartsheet with Target now. So yeah, it's still exciting and it's still scary because there's always room for error, but there's always room for improvement. So. I think one of the really amazing, one of the many amazing things about Kelly is that she works really hard to try and understand the process of architecture, you know, she's not an architect and she's trying to design processes for architects to do architectural projects. And she's like, what the heck does this mean? And does construction administration come before schematic design and, and all that kind of stuff? So we're like, okay, we, we got to baseline this and then move from there. And she, I mean, you said stupid questions, but none of them were stupid. It was just stuff that you, there's no way you could have known. Uh, but yeah, she just jumped in and tackled all of the smart sheet stuff like a champ. It was it was awesome. Nice. So what was it like onboarding a program that big to a new software system? Like what, what I were think we're still doing that. True. Yeah. <laughs> I think we do it every day. Um, <laughs> It's, uh, you know, we, like I said, we were learning it also. So being able to, you know, it's the, the building the bus and flying the plane at the same time. Um, trying to find small pieces of information and making it really easy for them. There's so much that's going on in the back end that nobody that actually uses the tool needs to know anything about. So I would try to keep that away from them so that they didn't get lost. Um, and constant training daily training and fielding questions on a regular basis. I really hope the team has always felt comfortable coming to me when they do have questions. Um, I, I still get them. Uh, I haven't worked with Target and for the last year and a half or so uh, and have only recently come back on, but I, I would still get questions from the team. So that is totally fine by me. I want them to feel comfortable to, to ask those because it's tools intuitive, but it's not that intuitive. There's always going to be room for, for that there. So, John, when we're adopting a new software system like that, you know, you have to do, you and your team both have to do a lot behind the scenes um, to get that on board. So, what are the technical ramifications um, of adopting a new system like that? Sure. Um, well, first of all, 
everyone give some virtual claps there for Kelly because honestly, Smartsheets um, would not be where we are with uh, where we are if not for her. Um, it was, I think, it was our first opportunity to really work together, Kelly. Right? I, mm -hmm. I don't think we worked um, alongside each other prior to this, but um, she's done an amazing job, uh, really being the subject matter expert, right? And that, that's where the hard stuff is. On my end, and to answer your question, Ryan, um, gosh, there's there's so much, right, that goes goes into that. Um, from from evaluating whether that that uh, application is on-prem or hosted, um, lots change depending upon what the answer to that question is, right? Uh, and if it is um, if it is hosted, how do we access our data, right? And is our data safe? And what happens if that relationship goes bad? How do we get our data back? Mm -hmm. um, security is always a major concern, obviously, right? Um, and then on the on-prem side, there's even concerns about data. We've uh, and it seems to be happening more often now, but we have clients that are coming back, you know, asking us to sign contracts before we, we do any work about how we're managing our data, right? Are we keeping that data segregated? Uh, meaning only, you know, we'll use Target as an example, but they don't do this. You know, only Target has access to their data, right? And nobody else, if you're not on the Target team, you don't have that data. Uh, that doesn't happen with just a flip of a switch, right? There's a lot of work in and um, uh, that that happens prior to that. And then even the licensing model, right? Things that people take for granted, but it's a huge ordeal on the back end and hopefully we make it seamless. But, um, you know, whether it's a network licensing model or, an, or a named licensing model. And if it's the mm -hmm. latter, those named licensing models get complex, right? Because we don't wanna just, there's financial impact on that. So we don't wanna just say, hey, Everybody in the company is now has a license for Smartsheet. Well, no, that's not really the responsible thing from a financial standpoint to do. So let's start to evaluate who needs, who doesn't. And Kelly, we've worked out a great process, I think, um, you know, where, where requests do come in, right? And then Kelly tackles them uh, and evaluates, do they really need it? How are they planning on using Smartsheet? All of that good stuff. And then really Kelly gives the thumbs up that, yeah, hey, John, let's give them, or IT, let's give them a license. Um, so I, there's, the list goes on and on, uh, platform compatibility, right? Is it Mac? Could you use it on a Mac, Ryan? Could you, uh, <laughs> is it just PC? Uh, is there mobile access? Um, there's, there's tons of complexities that go into uh, evaluating each platform that we use. Cool. Um, so Kelly and kind of for Eric too, um, you know, because of, of some of these experiences setting up the programs for target, we were able to leverage some of that for Amazon. So what kinds of things did you learn from target that made onboarding Amazon easier? Yeah, it, um, the smart sheet build was definitely a huge piece of it. Um, we were able to do project schedules and client reporting from the first week that we had started a project, which was really great. Um, obviously, iterations came after that, but we were able to deliver that as soon as we started. Uh, so the, the smart sheet piece, we can go on about <laughs> for quite some time. Uh, but there's really just in watching how Scott and Liz m set up the organization within the target team and a reporting structure and a training structure. Um, those were pieces that I was able to take from their knowledge and set up for the Amazon team. We modeled the MNET that, that, that 
Target has and set that up for Amazon. Um, so a lot of learnings came from that. Um, a lot of the tools and the processes were already built and just had to be modified to take them to a new team. Um, so they made it really easy for me to be able to do that. Um, every account's going to have different stuff, but because the, the core was already there, it made it a lot easier to be able to focus on those nuances that are cli really client specific. I think that one of the smart things that happened behind the scenes was really using target as a testing ground for a lot of things we wanted to try out so that we could then iterate and move things forward and modify them for other clients, for all of our clients that are program-based. Um, but then also go back and re-improve target with learnings that we have that we've done along the way in other programs. So I think um, it, it can't be emphasized enough how important that sort of starting program of target was for the firm to allow us to grow to where we are now and think beyond where we are now to where we want to go and then still have the willingness to try new things and do things kind of on the fly and and while you are building the plane um just really allows for flexibility and having the right people in place that understand where we want to go as a firm and how it's applicable to them in their daily work it's been it's been huge to evolve where we're growing with programs cool Definitely. and that's a good the segue. Target team is okay. really flexible <laughs> <laughs> We're just a bunch of guinea pigs. <laughs> and you hey, there's something to be said for that. It's it's to Eric's point. It is super important, right, to have those guinea pigs and and a lot of those uh, early adopters. Um, that sets the framework for the rest of the firm, right, and how we mm -hmm. roll things out and what we do. So it might you might be uh, a struggle a little bit for the for those early adopters or guinea pigs, but um, we couldn't do it without you. It's <laughs> very true. So Eric, talking about a new program like Rivian, um, yeah. what do you anticipate to be kind of the biggest growth opportunities there? Yeah, that one's that one's interesting. It's a super exciting client. I mean, they're they're well capitalized, and so they are very aggressive in what they want to do. Um, and so for us, we're starting in their service program. Um, so when a car uh, has damage or you know, whatever needs to happen from an uh, electric car standpoint to, to replace a battery or, you know, repair something that's been done. That's that's the model we're working in. But we've gotten our first three projects in due diligence and already there's also been a sales component to it, um, which we didn't expect right away. But they're starting right. to really change their model and have a sales and service combo mix um, when they can. Um, so they, uh, for us, there's going to be avenues in their business that we can start to scratch at and get relationships in and try and, and, and widen and broaden the services that we can provide for them. And I think with our program mentality, that's one of the things they really loved about us and what drew us back to them um, over and over again. And if you people probably don't know the sort of the history of our relationship with Rivian, uh, but we had a relationship with some of the people in charge when they were over at Tesla. Um, and then they moved to Rivian while we were building that relationship. And so they already knew us and kept us in mind. Uh, one of, I think, Travis Morton's, I think the story is that his roommate or friend from college or a really good friend recommended us also. And so we started dialogue with them and we lost that RFP three different times. And we lost it basically based on fee because we weren't aligned with what we thought it would cost, what they thought it would cost. And the experience we put out there and the the sort of expertise that we bring to the table on the program side um, and the delivery side was something that kept drawing them to us. 
we would just say, hey, that's great. We're sorry we lost it. Let's have a debrief on it. And then they would say, hey, we really want you. Here's kind of, you know, numbers need to be here. This is what we're thinking. Scope is this, scope is that. And just getting into a dialogue of how we can narrow in our scope of services, narrow in the fees to where they want it to be and make it acceptable and happy for everybody. Um, but it was built on a relationship of trust and built on a relationship of expertise. And that I think was something that was a little different for the way we built some of the relationships. And so, and so I think there's some opportunity there to really get in with their organization, learn about the parts of it, take sort of the mentality that we have as a firm of understanding them as a business and starting to figure out where we can add value for them. But we are just starting. It is, it is pure infancy and they are a startup. So it, it will. Yeah have its challenges and its bumps along the way. Um, but, uh, there's opportunity there. Cool. And I want to give you props for that too, because that's a good example of one that we could have just let die and, and you guys continued to chase it and build that relationship and, you know, turned into something great in the end and, and we'll go on to do great things. But, um, yeah, one of the things that I learned from being part of the CX market, and I will say the folks in the CX market, the leaders in there do a really amazing job of thinking through wins and losses and how you gain information, whether you won and why and losses of why. And so um, one of the things that I learned over there in that market was, you know, how do we get a debrief from our clients and how do we make sure that even though we lost, we're carrying that relationship forward and understanding why we lost so that the next opportunity we can evolve and change the, the approach. Um, and that's kind of what it was. It was just a, a phone call and an email that said, Hey, sorry, we didn't align on this. Let's chat for 30 minutes and just give us any feedback. And they were willing to do it and it just kept the conversation alive. So nice. That's awesome. All right. So speaking of evolution, um, Eric, how's our practice changed over the last just five to 10 years? What have been some of the pivot, pivot, biggest pivots that we've had to make? Uh, I think we've had a lot of them, actually. I think we've, we've, my opinion, we've come a really long way in the way that we view uh, boundaries around geography or hopefully now lack thereof. Mm -hmm. um, I think when I first joined the firm, it was a lot of regional silos. Um, the work that happened in Seattle happened in Seattle. The work that happened in Shanghai happened in Shanghai. The work that happened in D.C. happened in D.C. And I think we are much more uh, willing, adept and encouraging everyone to broaden their reach and put the right people on it, look outside of your geography, look outside of your market, um, and really look for the right people and the right expertise for your project, the right teams for your project to meet the client needs. Um, and I also think in our practice, we've totally evolved the way that we look at uh, financials and KPIs on projects to make sure that we are a healthy organization, to make sure that we are satisfying the needs of the firm also, and not just yes to our clients all the time, right? It is challenging our clients. It is a, a culture of one that needs results for MG2 and results for our clients, not just results for our client. And I think that that has evolved significantly since I joined the firm uh, and one that I'm, I'm really happy to see the evolution of. Agreed. So John, as our practice has evolved and as our firm has evolved um, over the past few years, I'm sure you've seen a lot of advancements um, from the technical side. So what have been some of the most surprising technical challenges that your team has faced? Uh, I think user adoption is definitely the it's not only the biggest challenge, but it's also the biggest surprise, right? And and I guess I've been at this for long enough, so I shouldn't say that's a surprise, but 
It is, it is right. It, it's the biggest struggle that we have. Um, and, and part of that is because we don't have that luxury, right. Of stopping things and implementing something, right. We have to kind of do everything while it's, while we're, while we're still working, right. The, the users or the, uh, the, the production staff need to be productive. And, uh, I, I kind of equate it to like, uh, changing the oil in the car, right. Not a big deal. Except we're trying to change the oil in the car while it's moving. It's a struggle. Um, and then when we do get that technology in place, you know, there's there's user adoption. How do we get our users to use that, use that tool, whether it be software, hardware, whatever it is, right? Because they have deadlines, they're under pressure, totally get it. Um, but we have to prove what the well, what is the value of changing this and how will it work? And that is that is truly a struggle that. I'm yet to master at all, uh, <laughs> but I thankfully, uh, you know, in speaking with my peers and other companies, uh, that is the biggest struggle that they have as well. So I don't feel isolated. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll keep at it, but, um, yeah, that's, it's, we struggle with that. Yeah. And sometimes you've got external factors like a pandemic that, give us a violent shove into, you know, change and in, in user adoption of, of certain things. So, um, you know, what kind of positive outcomes came from our, our sudden work from home pivot? Pandemic, ah, that's nothing, ah, <laughs> that's nothing. Uh, honestly, I'm extremely proud with how, um, how we handled the pandemic and getting through that. Um, but honestly, yes, a lot, a lot had to do with us, but it was also, um, the users adapting, right, and and being open to change, and I think that's the. I look at that as the silver lining, right? Is prior to COVID, I'll be honest, it was uh, it's it was a struggle, specifically in Seattle, where I think our users relied upon having that IT team, and I it's probably more than just IT, right? It's ops in general, but having the team there locally, and I feel like. That was their safety net. So do we really need to learn this? Oh, you know, we can always go there and get help. And um, it was a bit of a struggle. And 2019 happened, right? And um, they didn't suddenly have us right there, although we were available, it just wasn't as easy. So suddenly our users learned how to unplug things and plug things in and troubleshoot a little bit. And we're never asking them to spend an exorbitant amount of time, right? Your time is more valuable than that. But five or 10 minutes for the basics and, and get that out of the way is what we ask for, you know, and, and if it's going to start to take you into, into the, you know, 15, 20 minutes, a half hour, we don't want you to struggle on that. You, you have to, you know, you have your stuff to focus on, but I, I think that technological curiosity of our users has grown. And I'm praying that yeah. when we, as we start to go back to the office, that we don't slip back into those bad behaviors <laughs> Ross, um, and uh, you know you uh, you continue to to grow and uh, and you know use the technology and be curious and it's okay to unplug things and and test things out and uh, everybody's learned to use WebEx. That's the one I use, right? That's prior to COVID. Could you imagine us having a two hundred and three hundred people Friday morning meeting? Right? No way. And now all of a sudden COVID hit and we have 300 people on a WebEx meeting and we have video issues. We have audio issues. Nobody panics. It rolls off everybody's shoulders. 
That would never have happened in 2019. It would have been a, a shit show. <laughs> it's true. It's very true. I do think MG2 is uniquely positioned, though, because we already had so many people that, will, that were full-time remote. So we were lucky enough to have quite a few systems in place to allow working from home. Um, obviously, it, it scaled up very, very big, very quickly. Um, but I think um, in talking with Target about that transition, um, they said that MG2's transition to work from home was the, the smoothest of any of the consultants they worked with. And so, yeah, that's all you, John, you and your team. Yeah, and I think the other part that, that people don't understand, um, just to give John and his team a real, a real kudos for all that they did during that is there's a forward thinking strategy and approach that allowed them to basically for all of us appear as though we flipped a switch and it was already yeah. there. Because, mm -hmm. Not that John's team was thinking about a pandemic because nobody was, but mm -hmm. how do we position ourselves so that we could, if we had to be fully remote and the, the, the tools were already there and that doesn't mm -hmm. happen by accident. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That transition was 48 hours at the most with it. Mm -hmm. We were able to, to go home. So, Mad props to John and the mm -hmm. IT team for allowing that to happen so smoothly. All right, so next question, uh, Kelly, your PMO team um, has grown from a few people just a few a couple of years ago to a significant sized team. Um, what were some of the biggest challenges that you had in setting up that team so quickly? Yeah, it was, it has been fast. Uh, in January, there were five of us and now there's, in April, there were 12 of us. So it was rapid and it was right after the pandemic, or, you know, as we were on during, during the pandemic. pandemic. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. Um, all of this interviewing and everything was over teams and it, you know, interviewing over teams is totally a challenge. You're not sitting in the same room. You're not getting body language in the same way that you are. So that that was really different. Um, but we made some great choices. And our team now is really amazing and awesome. Um, so it, it's, they have made the onboarding and the training rather easy. I mean, because they're coming to us with the questions. They know the work that they're supposed to be doing. So it's really just pointing them in the right direction. Like this is the person you go to for this. It's there are challenges with it, you know. Don't get me wrong, but there's you know, um, this is the first time I've been a manager for MG2 and got a, a few direct reports, and it's really fun. It's fun to work with them and see you know what their skill sets are and what they get excited about, and you know the the questions and the ideas that they come with. So there's there's a lot more to come from from PML headed down the road. Sweet. We just don't even even know what it looks like yet. <laughs> it's very exciting. So Liz and Kelly both, um, you know, the target team has had to similarly scale pretty quickly. So what's your secret sauce to scaling quickly, onboarding efficiently, and still maintaining that high quality of work? Uh, I mean, <laughs> it's always a struggle. Um, if we if if we make it look easy, that's great. Uh, but it it's it's always a struggle. Um, Mostly just because, like you said, the, the size of the scaling at one time. Um, but we've tried over the over the years to put together a number of onboarding materials just to make uh, make it an easy transition when we do bring people onto the team. Um, the challenge with that is finding time to keep those up to date. So um, we are always getting caught 
uh, pardon the expression, with our pants down about some kind of process that's on the MNET that's outdated or, you know, something like that. So um, we're always finding those and trying to update them. Um, but um, trying to have some baseline onboarding materials is really crucial, I would say. Um, also, we've Kelly and her PMO team have been working a lot recently with um, uh, putting together a training session or training series with all of our new team members. Um, and we're recording it so that we can use that in the future, um, you know, just yeah. videos for future employees that join the team um, that they can reference. And, you know, if you want to find out how to put together a project set for, or I'm sorry, a document set for Target, you can watch this particular video. Um, it's not always the most engaging way to do it, but it is certainly a good reference point. Um, and it gives us a way to, um, to bring people on board kind of at a slow pace, let them kind of ease into the material, absorb it as as uh, as they can, and then throw them into 100 projects and, and see. <laughs> Trial see by fire, man. Yeah, I feel like we've we all learned been best. There. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, onboarding with Target is it's always a struggle. It, you know, the work comes and goes, uh, so it makes it a tricky uh, because you've got people at different levels coming in at different times. Um, so we just figure it out as we go. Mm -hmm. Try to keep that stuff updated. <laughs> Kelly, I don't think it's uh, onboarding a target. I think it's just onboarding period, whether we're talking internal, right. external. That's what I was going to say. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's something I don't think we'll ever master, right? And I hope we don't. I hope, you know, we continue to evolve it and learn from from the lessons. But um, if I look back 25 years ago, you know, how onboarding was then and onboarding is now. Hey, we're rock stars. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> With this training session that we're working on now, I mean, again, Target is the guinea pigs. We'll pick this up and we'll move it to other programs. And we we at least have the information or the, the sessions pretty well set. They'll be account specific and modified by the MG2 set and then the target set and the Amazon set and the Costco set. So that will be in the future. Nice. It's kind of the MG2 motto. We'll figure it out as we go, right? Yeah, <laughs> we do. We're changing that motto. We're going to change it to not build it while we fly. We're going to actually figure yeah. it out at a time moving forward. Yay. Thanks, Eric. Yeah. <laughs> That's the way it has been. That's not the future version. Cool. All right, well, let's pivot a little bit to um, remote work and regional work. So for Eric and John, um, what's the general feeling about being part of a regional office? Then do you feel connected to the firm? Or what ways do you not feel connected? <laughs> you go first, John. <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> this is a safe space. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I, no holding back here. It's not a... Um, I think my perspective is skewed, and probably Eric will agree. Um, my perspective is skewed, right, to say, because I have a lot of exposure and interaction um, with the entire firm, and I get to go and travel um, to Seattle or the regional offices. Um, so I think my perspective is skewed. But to answer your question, yes, I feel connected. But I could see, you know, some of the younger staff, and I don't mean just in age, maybe in, in um, um, you know, profession as well. I could see if they don't have that opportunity to travel, 
or even connect on calls a lot, right? Depending upon what their role is, I could definitely see a disconnect. And I, um, that question actually sparked a, a funny story that I don't remember who it was, but it was a younger person. This person happened to be young in their career, but they finally had an opportunity to go to Seattle. Uh, and they went and, you know, they did whatever they did and they came back and, you know, I was like, Hey, I had the trip go, you know, we, how are things? And their reaction was, wow, we're actually a big legitimate firm, <laughs> right? Like, because they don't see that when you're sitting in a regional office where just mm -hmm. a small, you know, 30 person, 25 person, small regional office, they probably hadn't had a lot of interaction other than seeing Ryan's face on the camera, seeing Russ's face uh, every now and then, right? Like they don't have that interaction. And then you go to Seattle and it's like, whoa, it's like the, <laughs> comes down. Um, so I think to answer your question, there is a bit of a disconnect um, in that regard to regional offices and Eric can maybe add to that or, or contradict it. Yeah. I think John's John's start to the statement was really a good one, which is, you know, he feels, and I feel connected, but it's by design, it's on purpose. Um, when I started at MG2, um, Doug frankly told me great advice, which is to make sure that you are connected with Seattle because that's where most of the people are and connect yourself through the other offices, through Irvine and through other markets and make sure that you are um, putting yourself out there if you're interested to participate in things that aren't just regionally focused. Um, and so there's a little bit of effort there that has to happen, but also it's, it's, it's good advice that I got, um, which is, you know, in a large firm, you have to have those connections and that, that thread through other places. A regional office is not where everything happens. It's where things happen and where you need to feel connected, but you really need to be connected throughout the whole firm at large. And so I got good advice and I got help along the way of, hey, make sure you meet this person when you're out in Seattle, talk to this people. And, and I've tried my, my darndest to make sure that other people are put in that position too, um, because it's good advice to feel that connection across the firm and to develop a relationship, right? I mean, Liz is in St. Louis. We worked together when she was in Bellevue and we still have a, a connection there because of the work we've done together. That's never going to go away. You can't. Mm -hmm take the Walgreens experience away from either of us as much as Liz would like you to take it away from her. <laughs> um, I, I think that that's really critical and success in the future is built upon the building of relationships. And that's something that uh, is a real emphasis. Uh, mm -hmm. I absolutely can see that young professionals who think they're just in a regional office and have no real connection um, would feel isolated and not understand the full culture and experience of MG2. And I think it's on us as leaders to make sure that that does not happen. And we, we give opportunity and advice and, and, and real live uh, examples of how that should work. Eric, so am I hearing that you actually got good advice from Doug? That's the, that's that's the one and say. only, that is the one <laughs> thing that I will give you. Everything else is <laughs> no, shaky. <laughs> He's not even here to defend himself. I know, right? He's exactly. on vacation. Right. He's on vacation. <laughs> Oh, well, then you can bag on him. In right. Well, let's be real, Liz. I would do it if he was on the phone. <laughs> yeah, cool, exactly. Cool. <laughs> oh, dear. So, Liz, you were part of the first wave of remote target employees. Um, what were some of the challenges in navigating, managing a remote team while being remote yourself? 
Um, I would say, um, I think probably connection to the team. I actually started working remotely first when I was working on the Victoria's Secret account. Um, and we worked with Allison McClellan in Houston. And so we that team was smaller and we were used to working with a remote person. So, um, you know, we kind of had that um, that process down, essentially. Um, so the initial shift to remote was pretty seamless. And then um, when I started, when I shifted to the target team, um, that's when I started managing more people and they were all in the same place. And it was, I felt a little left out, I'm not gonna lie. Um, but I think um, one of the, I guess the the best things that could have happened was that Scott was super supportive of, of that and me being on the team as a remote manager of people. Um, and so he made sure that all of our calls were video calls and, you know, they didn't go into a conference room and forget to, to pull me in on the video because that, that happened a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, or um, I, I think one of the other things that had to happen as a result of me not working with that team in person before I started managing was just a lot of phone calls. Um, checking in with the team, making sure, and I knew everyone in Seattle that I was managing, but I had never worked directly with them. Um, so making a lot of phone calls, touching base, making sure that they felt comfortable with me um, and they knew that I was available for them to ask questions to, um, that was really crucial um, because you don't want your team to feel like they're out on an island. And, you know, Scott was in Seattle, so he he um, could kind of pulled down the fort, but the day-to-day questions and stuff, those were supposed to come to me. So it was really important to me to make sure that the team felt comfortable, not just turning around and talking to Scott, but sending me a, a message and or picking up the phone call or picking up the phone and, and making a call. So um, I think that was the most challenging part was just kind of getting the team in the habit of reaching out to me and, and not forgetting I was here to help. Nice. You made it look really easy. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> Traveling back to uh, to the offices helped a lot too. Yeah, it's you know like the that face to face interaction is is underestimated, and I learned that early on. That I, at first I didn't think there was a need for that, right? But it, it, we had a project early on. Uh, I don't remember what year it was, but when we moved from Bellevue to Seattle, and there was a time that I. Actually, was out there in Seattle for a, a I don't know, two three months, mm-hmm. um, and that's when I realized the value of that face to face, right? That you you build that relationship with people because when I came back to the regional office, suddenly people were treating me different, right? Because I wasn't just a, a voice on the phone or a face mm-hmm. on the video. They actually got to meet me, and oh yeah, you know, John, he's uh, hopefully they said he's a cool guy or whatever, you know, but. <laughs> they got to know you and the relationship was different. And that's when I realized how important it is to make those trips out there and have dialogue mm-hmm. with people, even if they're not your direct report, right? It's just all about that um, that relationship building. And to be mm-hmm. honest, that's not an easy thing for me. It's, it's very outside my comfort level, um, but I realized the importance of it. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, we are coming up on time, so we'll uh, just do a couple more. Um, let's see. Through um, you know all the challenges that you guys have faced, the wins, the losses, everything. Who have been 
your kind of go-to mentors, people that you get advice from? Who do you want to go first? Ryan? Let's start with Kelly. All right. Well, I have a few. I've had some great mentors. Um, Karen, my boss, Karen Chalmers, uh, is an amazing mentor. She's a huge cheerleader for all of us and is really good at helping me figure out what I need to be working on and prioritize my work. Um, so Karen is great for that. And then also I've really um, been very lucky to have good relationships with both Natasha and with Janelle. Um, both of them have been really instrumental in helping me push myself and reminding me that I really can do it and going for it. So I really appreciate both of their work in that. Eric. Um, I, you can say me, Eric. It's okay. I, yeah, I'm not going to say John, although John and I do have a really great relationship <laughs> and we do bounce things off of each other. And frankly, it's because of the leadership development training and, and yeah. the work that we did in our cohort. Um, I still have some really strong relationships from that cohort. Um, and it was by design by the firm. Um, and it really is something that I will keep carrying forward and preach because it's been great. But uh, for me, um, there was a former employee, Walt Geiger, uh, who no longer is with the firm, who really changed the way that I thought about my career and changed the way that I thought about my skill set and how I can be a different asset to the firm. Um, I was really dealing with a lot of technical project management and kind of lost part of my uh the thought, I didn't feel like I could have any sort of impact on a design scale because you're either this or you're this or you're something else. Mm -hmm. And he really was like, you know what? Um, you have a really good eye for design. You may not be able to be the one who's got the hand to hand draw it like I can, but your criticism and understanding of the importance of design and the process with which it takes and being a supporter and a fighter for design and you know, being able to have discussions about the design, not just the tech technical end of it, but the aesthetic end of it. Um, really changed the way that I thought about design and changed the way about my place in design and that, yeah, you can be a technical architect, but your appreciation and understanding and contributions to design, that's not just for quote unquote designers. That is what we do as a profession. And that is something that is beautiful about what we do. And anyone can contribute to that. And that really sort of brought this passion of design out that I had and have always had, um, but kind of lost through the machination of a career growth. Um, and one that did definitely lead towards a technical bent um, and a business bent. Um, so for me, I still talk to him every once in a while on a regular basis. I still run things by him when I when I have some advice. He was a great advocate for me, um, and I was a great supporter of his. Um, and and he he's someone who I, I go to. That's great. Walt's a cool guy. I heard what Hey, John. Uh, oh, I love Walt, by the way. Uh, and I love that you use the word machination. I don't know what it means, <laughs> but I think it's really cool that you used a big word like that. Um, so, uh, I, wow, I, I, I have to say, Celeste, but so an interesting uh, tidbit that many people might not know is I've been here for 25 years. I've only had two bosses. Um, I, uh, I'm not counting the 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 man that shall not be mentioned right because that was a very small uh small part not even a year uh but yeah it's celeste hired me and that's another funny story that um 
We will tell when we're out for beers with people. <laughs> uh, she hired me, uh, then she left and Jason was uh, took over and Jason left and Celeste came back. So I've only <laughs> had two bosses my entire career, but I've been very fortunate um, um, to have both of them. So, you know, I, I don't know, I kind of model who I am, the way Celeste is and the way Jason is, and they're both uh, similar people. Good or bad. All right, Liz. Um, I mean, the first person that comes to mind is probably no surprise, but Scott for sure. Um, he's like my work bestie. Um, Which is everybody's work bestie. That's <laughs> probably true. <laughs> um, I mean, our, our careers are kind of at the same point, but um, we have very uh, opposing skill sets and strengths. So I think we um, we get along a lot because of that. Um, and then I would say also Justin just through working through or working on uh, Target and he's like so level, <laughs> you know, he's just like anytime you call Justin with a problem, he's like, yeah, that's yeah. fine. We'll figure it out. <laughs> I'm like, all right, cool. Well, I'm freaking out, but if you're not, that's great. <laughs> so, so it's nice to have, uh, but, but then you're called Scott and Scott's like, oh my God, and he's flipping tables and up in the air so it's nice to be like bookended by both of those guys and uh be able to call them both if uh if something's going sideways or you know like a win uh, that we want to celebrate um and get such opposing reactions but um always support always there to help always always a listening ear um so really really helpful nice all right, real quick, last question for everybody. Um, we're going to end where kind of the opposite of where we started. So let's hear about your most satisfying or more, most hard-earned win. Let's start with you, John. Of course. I, I, <laughs> um, I, I, gosh, it has to be the most rewarding um, time in my career was the move from Seattle to... I moved from Bellevue to Seattle. Um, last year was 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 also very very high on the list, but um, moving a corporate office from Bellevue to Seattle and not having any idea what the hell you're doing uh, <laughs> was a really big. I remember talking to Celeste and saying, "She's like jazz hands it, jazz hands it. You'll get it figured out. You'll get it figured out." Uh, and I, I certainly did, and I'm, I'm so grateful and thankful for the team that I have because there is where the real work happened and the real magic happened. But um, very proud that we shut Bellevue down at 5 p.m. on Friday, and uh, for the most part, everybody was working on Monday at uh, at 8 a.m. And Russ, since you're sitting uh, <laughs> uh, on my screen, I remember you saying we had a Costco call on Monday. And I'm like, Russ, I recommend that we don't have that Costco call. Uh, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. And he says, uh, okay, thank you, Coochie, but we're having the Costco call. I was going to say, no pressure. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, he was not budging at all. And I'm like, oh, my God. And the funny story about the phone system is that we didn't have that up and running until 7 a.m. Yeah. on Monday morning. Uh, but it all worked out. And um yeah, I, I think that's a, a super high point in my my life. Hell, and it and it worked. <laughs> it did work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Nice, Great. Kelly. 
Oh, my turn. Um, so the last year I've been working with Amazon. Uh, it's been about a year and a half, two years that we were into the program. Uh, then we started noticing that all of our projects were going over budget, like all of them. And it got real scary there for a little while. So we had to pull our shit together, really, and figure out like how to start getting money for the work that we had done. So we had done the work. It may have been inside of scope, outside of scope, whatever, but we didn't have a system in place to get that really figured out. So we made one. And um, I think over the last year and a half, uh, the contracts team for Amazon has written 120 contracts and probably another 250 to 300 wow. amendments. That's just wild. To, to get those are documents just to get the money back in the door. Um, and that that's just the document writing. That's not the project managers that had to pull all of that information together with the consultants. It's been a massive, massive effort. Um, but in the end, the projects look really good. You know, they're not perfect. Some of them are still over budget. That's that it's going to be that way. But holistically, we got to the, the program from being in the red to mostly in the black uh, within a year and a half or so. Super proud of that. Thanks. Liz, how about you? You're muted. <laughs> Man, it took that long to get to that point. Um, <laughs> we could have done this whole meeting without saying that phrase. Um, I'll end where, where I began with a story about Walgreens. Um, we did a renovation to a store in downtown Seattle at 3rd and Pike. And it was just, I mean, I, I think everybody has that project in your career where you just cannot win. There are issues and challenges and opportunities around every corner. Um, and that was that project for me. It was nothing went right. Um, but in the end, it uh, it turned out really nicely. Um, it doesn't look the way that we intended it to look, but um, we got that project done. The client was super happy with it. Um, and uh, shortly after that, we ended our relationship with Walgreens. But, you know, like all this stuff is kind of crumbling around us while we're trying to finish this project and uh, and just get it across the finish the finish line. And um, it it ended up the client was was happy with it. And um, we we delivered the project and it looks great and it's still there. Um, but yeah, that was that was a win for sure. I was never so happy to finish a project in my life. <laughs> All right, Eric, bring us home. You're also music. Yeah, number two. <laughs> I did that on purpose to help Liz. Yeah, yeah. Um, Big relief. It was perfectly timed, Eric. Your timing is perfect. Um, I I think for me it was the work that we did on. The uh -oh. competition to um, do a project overseas, and I had never really worked in that environment. And it was a, a paid stipend and very minimal, but we worked uh, a team of the same people that design Costco's and do all the other stuff that we do out of DC, designed this really high end master plan for a town in China. Um, we collaborated with the Shanghai office and its leadership at the time, which was different than today. Um, we also were able to uh, produce some really high quality, amazing work across two holidays um, and wound up winning the competition 
other stuff happened after that whole different issue. But also it is the only project that the firm has that I know of that's an AIA design award of excellence. And mm -hmm. to be part of that, I think it's pretty amazing and pretty special and something I'm super proud of to be a part of that project team. Um, I'm the only one left in the firm from that project team. And so <laughs> I can say whatever I want about it because, because I'm the only one who's got the bragging rights. But, um, that was a really, really, really proud moment. Um, we, when we found out we won that, we popped champagne in the office and everybody was super thrilled and the images are beautiful and the, mm -hmm. the work was really hard and well earned. Um, the second one I'll say, and I think this one's different is, uh, when we moved offices from the seventh floor to the first floor in the other building and we moved our office, because I've never been under so much pressure and stress to deliver a project on time and under budget in my life. And having your firm as your client is the worst thing you could ever imagine doing. <laughs> and the leadership of the office at the time was even more fickle than you could ever imagine. And so it was a real <laughs> high pressure cooker. But coming through on the other side and having the space that we have and knowing the financial benefits of that space, plus the health benefits that we achieved for our staff in that office, that one's super proud, and I don't hate going to work every there. Going to going to work there every day, which is uh, sort of a side bonus because it would have been miserable. <laughs> nice. Hey, hey Ryan, I know you're closing us out, but I I want to put you on the spot. Uh, you did an amazing job facilitating this, Thank but uh, tell us what, what what's what's your proudest moment? My proudest moment. Um, shoot, I don't know. Um, Aha! Put you on the spot. Yeah, I think. Um, you know, working with Kim to rebuild our team, you know, we've been through um, so many transitions in our team in the eight years that I've been here and, and had so many variations and iterations of our team. Um, so I think, you know, like I say, working with Kim to kind of build it up to what, what it is now. We have 10 people now from uh, four that we started with in 2019. Um, and you know, it's the most amazing team that I've ever worked with and, and, you know, the most talented, brilliant people that, that I know and, and have worked with and challenge me and lift me up and support me every day. But, um, so yeah, I think that's mine. That's crazy. I didn't realize you guys were, were 10 people. Um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, knowing how you guys have kind of gone up and down headcount wise, uh, but also skill set wise. Yeah. And I, I have to agree, you know, you guys are, are killing it right now. And uh, the work that you produce is amazing. And I've, mm -hmm. I've, I've enjoyed, I hope we don't lose some of the stuff that we started, stuff like this, or um, uh, some of the other things that we've done through COVID that yeah. uh, it helps us be being regional, right? It helps us be more connected. So um, you guys are awesome. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you guys so much for having this chat with me and for sharing your stories and, and advice through all of this. Um, thank you everyone for sticking around through all of this. The recording will be available um, probably in the next couple of days. So um, thanks again. Have a great evening, uh, John and, and Eric. Go get some dinner and hopefully your glasses <laughs> are empty. So, thanks everybody. Have a good thank day. Thank you. See you guys. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye.